Pachango. Chris and any Tangelistas that might be picking up on this transmission just wanted to send out some love to everybody I am nestled in a hammock in some trees that overhang the White River in Indiana I have my dog on the bank right there just listening to some tunes having a good time and a song came on that I remember you said you really liked Chris Uh, can you get to that by Funkadelic and it just made me think of you and I wanted to send out some love and gratitude for you um really looking forward to meeting you one of these days i've been dying to get out to the sex at dawn retreat in whitefish montana i just haven't been able to but one of these days man i'm really looking forward to meeting you i really am that dilemma you talk about how like you have all these listeners who feel like they've really developed a relationship with you but you don't know them well hopefully hopefully we can change that man Um, hope you're doing good love you uncle chris well thank you christian Love you too, within the parameters of uh, not knowing you, <clears throat> but uh, you sound like a good dude. You're in a hammock, which is my kind of deal, and you got a dog sitting on the shore, which sounds pretty cool. Um, thank you for writing, and I do hope you come to Montana, and I hope we uh, get a chance to hang out. Uh, we have tentatively made plans to do this again next year. I think I mentioned in the last episode, I have it written down somewhere. Fuck. I don't know where it is, but, uh, I think it's in June. So, uh, yeah, set aside the entire month of June. Now it'll be four days. Uh, and, uh, I will check in and let you know anyone who is seriously considering it and plans that far ahead. Just drop me a line and I'll get you the exact dates. As always, you can reach me at thatchrisryan at gmail.com. I don't know. Giving out your email on a podcast is one of those things that everybody tells you you should never do. And I, I used to set up these uh, the kind of um, shell emails on Google. But they all feed into the same place. Uh, and so what's the point, really? Like you'll sell it to spammers or something, but I already get a bunch of spam. I I don't know. It's like the people tell you never post a photograph of your vehicle with a license plate showing, but that's another thing I thought through that. It's like, well, who gives a shit? Anybody can take a picture of your license plate. It's kind of public information. I used to never put my birth date on anything public or mention when I, the day I was born. Cause I thought that that would assist people in identity theft, but your fucking birthdays everywhere. I mean, if you look on Wikipedia, it says the day I was born, it's probably the only accurate thing in there. I don't know. Anyway, it's hard, it's hard to know what to keep secret and whatnot. And, and uh, I kind of feel like we're quickly moving into an era where there are no secrets. There's just, misinformation and and false information which i don't know is that a kind of secret it's all very strange Ah, i don't know anyway welcome to episode number 582 of tangentially speaking i'm your host christopher ryan also known as uncle chris to some dr fur to others 
that long-winded shithead to others. Yeah, I don't know. You call me whatever you want. Uh, people who get my name wrong call me Steve for some reason. Pretty much everyone who gets my name wrong has called me Steve. I don't know if that means I was a Steve in a previous life. If I look like a Steve. Or, here's my theory. Their memory records the S sound of Chris. And so, Steve. S. Steve. You know, five letters. Is that right? Yeah, they both have five letters. There's a prominent S sound. Chris, Steve. Yeah, it's good enough. I, for one, do not give a shit what people call me. I'm totally fine with whatever you want to call me. This episode is with a young man named Joshua Wright. Uh, He's an interesting cat. He's, when I say young, I mean, what is he, 20? 20? I don't don't know. We talk about it in in the episode, but... He's a very young man. He dropped out of high school when he was 14. I didn't know you could be in high school when you were 14. I sure as fuck wasn't in high school when I was 14, was I? Anyway, he's precocious. He's a brainy kid. He's a smart kid. He's a kid with a lot of heart and a lot of energy and uh, a lot of concern with the state of the planet. So basically, he was growing up, uh, I think, in the uh, the peninsula, whatever that's called, the Olymp- Olympic Peninsula, Olympia, what off you know near Seattle, and um, there was a lot of clear cutting going on, and the youngster was upset by that, and he started looking into it and got really uh, sort of impassioned about environmental issues, and as many young people are finding as they come to consciousness, as the sort of the lights of awareness begin to glow, one of the things that they illuminate is this fucking mess that surrounds them, surrounds all of us. And um, Joshua's response to that was not to turn to drugs and alcohol and uh, God knows what else to try to dull the pain his response was to drop out of high school and make a film uh travel the world investigate this what can we do what's the situation what's happening who's helping who's hurting uh you know what is this situation that we're in so he did that and amazingly he completed it and made a film, a very good film. It's called Eden's Last Chance. I first met Joshua probably about five years ago when he reached out to me uh, asking uh, if uh, he could interview me for the film. And um, he was in Thailand at the time, and I happened to be in Bali, on, and I was flying to Thailand to visit a friend. So we arranged to meet in Phuket, and um, yeah, he set up a camera. I think his dad was with him, uh, working as a assistant, and um, he interviewed me on the rooftop of a hotel in Phuket. And um, yeah, and then I think his dad, I was sitting outside of the one and only cafe in Crestone a couple of years later, and a guy walked by, and I was like, fuck, I know that guy. Why do I know that guy? And uh, 
anyway, when he came out with his coffee, I said, hey, and he said, hey, and turns out it was Joshua's dad who happened to be in Crestone traveling around. And um, so we hung out a little bit and I think I invited him to come take a shower at the house. He was road tripping, so showers were few and far between. Um, anyway, so I, I know the family and, uh, Joshua and his mother came by Crestone. So we recorded this here in our little Crestone pad. Um, yeah, it's great. He's a cool guy. I hope you enjoy this episode a lot. I have been busy there. There hasn't been, I haven't posted anything in a while. And, um, the reason for that is that it's been busy season in Creston. It's very seasonal here, which is one of the things that I really like about this. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania mainly until I was 15 and then Connecticut and upstate New York, you know, places where there are seasons, the leaves change, the temperature changes, snow is an issue. Um, and, Living in Spain, there's a little bit of seasonal change in Bar- Barcelona, but not really a lot. And then L.A. for years, Portland, um, you know, and sort of moving to tropical places in the winter. I sort of have gotten out of touch with the seasonal rhythm and being here in Crestone, where the sky is such a big part of life here and uh, this sort of very changeable, tempestuous, rocky mountain weather patterns here at 8,000 feet. I've become much more aware of seasons. And, you know, it's it's one of those things that you don't know you miss it uh, until you feel it again. And then it's like, wow, this is so grounding. It's so comforting in a strange sort of way to have these seasons, to have, you know, four seasons in one day, the great crowded house song sums up the weather here in the mountains. You know, it's like right now outside, it's probably 75 degrees. Absolutely beautiful, glorious and it'll probably be down to the 40s tonight. Uh, rainstorm can pop up in 10 minutes. You can go from beautiful sunny sky to hail the size of marbles and crazy windstorms. It's just like always something going on. It's it's awesome. Um, anyway, so there's been a lot of seasonal stuff going on, harvesting in the gardens and the Crestone Energy Fair happened last weekend, which is like the biggest thing that happens in Crestone every year. Um, yeah, there are bands playing and, you know, vendors and um, talks given by people who specialize in alternative building. And um, I didn't see a lot of energy related stuff this year, but there were people talking about earthships and straw bale home building and uh there's a demo building being uh erected using different kinds of techniques um you know sort of like a a mud what's that stuff called um cob cob building and straw bale and hempcrete and uh pumicecrete and all sorts of interesting um building technologies because 
Here in this county, Sawatch County, we have no building codes. So there are plumbing and electrical inspections that need to happen. But as far as, you know, what kind of walls are holding up your roof, that's up to you. It's your business. And if the whole thing collapses on you, it's your own damn fault, I guess. It's kind of a Wild West uh, approach to, to building out here, which, you know, has its pros and cons, obviously. But one of the pros is that, you're free to experiment. You're free to do something that you wouldn't be allowed to do in other places. And uh, so that's why there's some really interesting, unique architecture here in Crestone. People are um, building homes in ways that uh, make a lot of sense environmentally. And, um, but, you know, maybe don't fit into the industrial commercial consumerist system so well. Yeah. Too fucking bad, huh? So far, it's a small enough area that the, you know, the consumer culture has not uh, reached in and strangled this creative energy here yet. Um, they tried. They tried to pass a um, code, building code, I think this year, and it was defeated. So as of the moment, uh, Crestone and Sawatch County, uh, you can still build what you want to build, which is one of the appeals of the place. The land is cheap. And if you are a builder or you're, you got a group of friends who can all get together and help you raise a house, you can, you can do things quite cheaply here. Anyway, so that was happening. Super busy with that. And, um, yeah. And then uh, we went up to Denver. Uh, we had some visitors, lots of people in town for the energy fair. Uh, we had, uh, I don't know, a dozen people camping in our driveway at one point. And uh, Anya's brother was in town and, and some other friends. And so we all went up to Denver, dropped some people off at the airport. And we saw a concert, first concert I've been to in a long time, Hermanos Gutierrez. I've played their music on the podcast before. If you're not familiar with them, check them out. They are two uh, brothers. I think they're Mexican originally, and they live in Europe and Switzerland, I believe. Um, and uh, they're cool dudes. They, they both play guitar, and they have developed a style that's very groovy and relaxing and... Um, you know, it's kind of strange though, because it's like, I, I don't know how to say this. This, I, this, this is going to sound like an insult, but it isn't. Their songs all kind of sound the same to me anyway. And that could just be, uh, a reflection of my ignorance, but, um, they do kind of sound the same. And that's a good thing because I really like the sound. So you put on an Hermanos Gutierrez album and it's just groovy and relaxing and calm and just it's it's just a really nice sound. It's something to put on when you're cooking or hanging out with friends. And for me personally, it's not something I would like, you know, listen to with headphones after smoking a joint when I really want to think. I mean, that would be the Beethoven late quartets or some Bach or Pink Floyd or, you know, Let It Bleed or whatever. Um, these guys are, I have the same kind of uh, feeling about uh, reggae. Like reggae pretty much all sounds the same to me. I mean, I guess you could say the same thing about blues. 
it's a very particular voice tone energy you know that's very consistent within those different types of music um and Emranos Gutierrez is is I think falls into that anyway so it was really interesting to go to a show at the Ogden Theater in Denver which man there was a lot going on there um but it was just interesting it was a sold out crowd and they were super enthusiastic about these guys but it's just two guys sitting on stage playing guitar they, there was like a screen behind them but it was a really bad light show no production no nothing fancy no real like you know patter storytelling or anything you know they're nice guys and you know they were they were uh communicative but it wasn't like nobody was dancing there, there's nothing really happening but the crowd was super into it and a lot of them were young a lot of them in their in their 20s and it just sort of struck me as a enigmatic thing like it it seemed to me on a musical level it was it was kind of like going to see a string quartet it was that kind of you know silent crowd nobody's dancing not in the crowd not on stage um people are very attentive very polite very focused and the music has a lot of silence in it and a lot of space and yet you know at the end of each song people are fuck yeah yeah really super into it it just seemed like this weird juxtaposition between the energy of the performers and the energy of the audience i can't say i i really understand that um but if any of you have gone to a uh, a concert by Hermanos Gutierrez, and they're on tour now. I hear they'll be in California this week, I think. So check them out. It's an interesting experience. Tickets were twenty-five bucks. Um, not not that expensive for a concert. Um, Denver, yeah, I hadn't been in Denver for a while, and especially that part of Denver. It reminded me of New York in the eighties, early eighties. It was rough. It was intense. Lots of people, homeless people in the streets. Lots of kind of aggressive, edgy energy. Like shit could get really bad really quickly. Um, We had a pizza in this restaurant and the guy at the table next to us was talking about how the night before there had been 17 shots fired on that block. And this was like a residential block. Um, Kind of intense. Yeah. I didn't like it. I got to say, I felt, uh, yeah, I felt like... uh, I don't know, like walking around Guatemala City or Nairobi or someplace where it's just like, oh boy, keep your fucking wits about you. This is, you got to be firing on all cylinders here. Yeah, strange times we live in, ladies and gentlemen. 
Upcoming podcast episode, there's a comedian, Simon King. Uh, I'm going to chat with him this week. I found him on Instagram. Check him out if you're on Instagram. He's probably on TikTok and other venues as well. I I don't know. But uh, he came to me via the Instagram algorithm. He is a very smart, very funny, and very insightful comedian. He's... uh, Some of his stuff is like, wow, okay, can't believe that guy found humor in that situation, but he did, and kudos to him. He's very much in the tradition of George Carlin. Um, You know, I think he's he's a teacher. Uh, He's he's a very interesting guy. So I'm very much looking forward to that. I think that'll be the next episode. I don't have. I don't think I have anything in the can right now, so that'll be fresh from the oven. Uh, I also am recording this uh, video. I'm recording the intro on video. So I thought it might be interesting. We'll see what the reaction is. Um, But I thought, what if I shoot a video of me recording the intro? And I will uh, include a link to that for supporters of the podcast. Because I'm always, you know, my impulse is just give everything away for free and then I can't pay the rent. So I can't do that. Um, So I'm always looking for things that I can, you know, bonus material that I can give to supporters of the podcast, people who throw in five bucks a month uh, to keep this thing rolling and uh, without taking anything away from those of you who can't afford it or who are, you know, tapped out supporting other stuff, which I totally get. Everybody's asking you for, for your change these days. And, um, so yeah, sometimes, you know, I, I support three or four podcasts and that's about all I can handle. Uh, so I certainly don't blame people who are like, Chris, I'd love to, but honestly, you know, you're number five or six on the list and only numbers one through three get my money. I get it. Um, All right. I think that's enough. 22 minutes of me yammering on. I will uh, turn this over to Joshua Wright, our conversation recorded here in podcast a little while ago. And I will play you out with the tune that uh, Christian in Indiana mentioned. Can you get to that by Funkadelic? Great song. Listen to the way the voices interplay and the lyrics are awesome, too. You know, Um, I once had a life. Or rather, life had me. I was one among many. Or at least I seemed to be. But I read an old quotation in a book just yesterday. Said you're going to reap just what you sow. And he'll make you have to pay. Can you get to that? Can you get... Yeah, it's... uh, And whenever I hear the song, I always sort of sing along with the the low dude. I want to know. I want to know. Yeah, get down there. All right, everybody, sending out lots of love from Crestone. Hope the weather is fine wherever you are. Hope you're feeling good. And uh, I'll be back with you in a week or so if the creek don't rise.
in your loving days of dawn. Church shoes, sign with love and kisses, made a comeback sign. Insufficient one. Loving days are done. I text you, sign with the love and kiss a later come back. Shine insufficient fun, y'all get to that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting at the the bar, which is the only furniture we have right now, <laughs> with Joshua Wright. Joshua, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, you and I met in Thailand, what, four-plus years ago? Yeah, I think, I think it was in 2019. Right, right. You At that point, you were, what, a high school dropout? Uh, I guess you're still a high school dropout, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, that hasn't changed. So, yeah, we met... Um, I dropped out of high school in in ninth grade to make Eden's Last Chance. And yeah, at that point, I had dropped out of like a year before and we were starting to make the documentary. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I remember you and your dad interviewed me on some hotel rooftop in Phuket. That was an interesting, interesting day. Yeah, I think I had just flown in from Bali. Yeah, wow. Uh, Eden's last chance. So let's talk about it. You finished it. You didn't finish high school, but you finished a film. They should give you a diploma anyway, just for that. Yeah. So I, I mean, I dropped out, um, right around when the IPCC report came out, Mm -hmm. uh, the one that where they were saying we had 12 years left to avoid catastrophic climate change. And that, that point I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I know I wanted to not be in high school because it felt a bit ridiculous <laughs> yeah. <laughs> given if like, if, if the world is, is really in di- that dire straits and you're being educated essentially to, you know, you're being educated to go get a degree from a college so you can go to get another degree from a college so that then you can do something with your life. And it's like, by then I would probably have been in my mid twenties and the, apparently the world would have <laughs> been on the brink of destruction by then. Not that it isn't anymore, but I felt like I had to be doing something. And at the time, I was inter- interested in documentary filmmaking. So I dropped out and we started the film by, at, at the time, my mom worked at the embassy. So we lived in Thailand. And um, I I had heard about this mine called the Adani Carmichael Coal Mine. And it was set to be the biggest coal mine on the planet. So I wanted to make a film about that. Uh, and this was in Australia. And it's located in an area called the Galilee Basin. And the Galilee Basin is the largest coal basin that it has been untapped in the world. So there's more coal in that basin than anywhere else. And the Adani Carmichael mine would be the first one in that coal basin. And 
the mine would have built a rail line and that rail line would have serviced up to 10 other coal mines that are mm. currently being approved. And since we filmed there, they actually have approved the mine, but <laughs> that's a whole nother story. But the film kind of snowballed from there and it went from a film that was sort of about climate change and about, you know, we shouldn't do burning coal, we should be transitioning to renewables into a film about, wait a minute, maybe it's not, fossil fuels aren't actually the problem. Fossil fuels are part of the problem, but the problem is industrial civilization and Western civilization at its roots. Wow. So how did the film transition into that? Was it just the research you were doing? You kept like coming up, hitting a wall and realizing like, oh, this this solution that, that's being proffered wouldn't actually work, even if we could get it. This is a much more systemic issue. Um, what did that feel like? I mean, I think that if you think about the solutions that are being put forward by whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act, which is more the Green New Deal type thing, or really, if you look at in large environmental groups offering their solutions to climate change, and if you look at industries' solutions to climate change, they don't, don't actually stop destroying the planet. They just say, we're going to destroy the planet more sustainably. Right. Reduce and, the rate. Yeah. And I'm interested in not destroying the planet. Right. Um, so I think that that became obvious with the film is, you know, even if you transition to renewables, and we're transitioning to re renewables right now, what we're seeing is that renewables themselves are becoming one of the largest threats to biodiversity on the planet. I don't know how much keep up with deep sea mining or stuff happening around that. But, you know, we're right now, Canada's cutting down old growth forests and burning them as quote unquote renewable energy. You know, uh, <laughs> we're putting off, you know, up wind turbines at a very rapid clip and those are leading to the bird extinction. So it's not that, no, we shouldn't be trans transitioning to renewables. We need fossil fuels instead. It's that we need to return to a way of life where we do not need um, industrial amounts of electricity. And we've lived, we've lived like that for tens of thousands of years, and we survived just fine. And our, our desire for a world, um, a world of international travel, a world of, of more, is what's destroying the earth. And unless we accept that, it, like correct diagnosis is the first step to, towards proper treatment. And right now, the environmental movement and by and large, Global, the governments of this world think we can have growth and think we can keep on doing what we're doing, but it will suddenly be sustainable and green just because we transition to renewables. And just because we aren't releasing any more carbon does not mean that the rest of the world is going to, is going to be okay, because it's not. Right. But if we did return to uh, a way of life more similar to how we've lived for tens of thousands of years, as you suggest... That's not going to reduce necessarily carbon, right? Because, I mean, people were cooking over fires and warming themselves with burning wood uh, or peat or, you know, whatever. Um, like, without a, a drastic reduction in population as well as uh, a return to more sustainable ways of using energy, we're still fucked, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't deny that we're in a... I mean, if, if you, <laughs> when you watch the film, it isn't, it doesn't necessarily end up in a happy point, but by all, by all metrics, we're probably screwed. Right. David Corton, who's a, uh, an economist in the film basically says, we face the imperative to do the impossible and to do it instantly. And <laughs> that's, that's kind of the predicament yeah. we find ourselves in. So it's not a matter of, do we save the world or don't we save the world? It's at this point, it's a matter of how much of the world do we save? And Beyond that, it's like there's, you know, we are going to have a degree of collapse. We are going to um, 
face in what in, in many ways will be the end of the world for a lot of people. But I think the difference is that, you know, for the non-human world and for for many indigenous communities around the world, for most indigenous communities, for most of the non-human world, this is the end of the world. You know, I since the film, I've I've gone deep into activism to save old growth forests, and we're fighting over the last couple percent of trees. Yeah, and it's it's been the end of the world for the world has been ending for about ten thousand years as humans have expanded our empire across the face of the earth, and realizing that means it isn't about really saving the world. It's more about saving what's left and trying to make sure that after the sixth extinction is over, whenever it ends, you know, (laughs) that more of the world rather than less is left over. And for me, you know, that could look like creating human communities that are sustainable and that are nurturing and that actually try to inspire us to be our, our, the best versions of ourselves. Cause we can live, you know, we can live in really egalitarian groups where, you know, we aren't ruled by people like Trump and, you know, but, for me, that looks like saving every wild species that's out there uh, to the degree that we can and fighting to preserve as much habitat as we possibly can because increasingly what we're facing is 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 accelerationist. You know, people aren't don't understand that even as we're supposedly, you know, Amazon has <laughs> Amazon in, in Seattle has an arena called Climate Pledge Arena. So it's a big stadium and it's Climate Pledge Arena. And it's like, is there there's nothing least cl- less climate friendly than <laughs> a sports stadium, but we need to realize that even as the uh, system is greenwashing as much as it possibly can and saying, oh, look, we are heading in the right direction, that you know, um, economic dro- growth is projected, projected to grow exponentially. So I don't remember what, exa- what report it was. I think it was from PricewaterhouseCoopers. But they were, they're estimating that we are going to double in size in the global economy by 2035 and triple by 2050. And you can imagine how bad it is right now. It's going to be a hell of a lot worse in about twenty or thirty years as we keep on doubling, and that's you know that's exponential growth for you. And the fact is, is that the the, the destruction of the natural world is accelerating, and it's not the problem isn't going to solve itself. <laughs> yeah, the, the rate of destruction is accelerating, and as you pointed out, the amount that's left is ever smaller. So. You know, if you're eating faster and you're eating a smaller piece of cake, like those two things conspire to, you know, accelerate even more, right? There's almost nothing left and we're going faster. So, mm-hmm. well, do you think that the collapse that you're talking about is ultimately a good thing if you're looking at this from a trans species perspective? Um, you know, maybe. Maybe the idea of sustainable human developments, maybe animals look at, you know, non-human animals look at that and say, no, dudes, you had your shot. Like, go ahead and off yourselves and, and get the fuck out of here. You know, I'm not sure human ingenuity is going to get us out of the mess that human ingenuity got us into. Well, I think that's that's exactly it, is we can't fix a problem using the same mindset we use to create it. And we use technology to create this problem. Technology is in many ways the problem, whether it's, you know, computers, you know, made out of, you know, cobalt mined by children in, in the Congo, whether it's um, even, you know, more basic things like plows. What did plows do? They destroyed the soils. So I absolutely think that a return to an indigenous way of living on the land is the only option in the long run. And for me, you know, look like I I spend my time in timber sales, so I go to areas that are about to get clear cut, that nobody really goes to except these you know except timber industry people, and you know the goal is to save them, but the vast majority of the time you don't, 
and you see trees that are a thousand years old that you knew the the other week and they're you know in stumps that you know I, and I, i'm like no joke they're cutting down trees in canada right now that are five or that, that are 10 feet thick actually 10 feet thick and a thousand years old and from my perspective when you're in the, a forest like that and like you you hear the forest you hear you, know, you essentially hear it screaming out for help and not you know not in some like spiritual mystic sense but in like a very real like you feel called to do something about it and when you feel that call it's like it's hard not to see a form of collapse as a relief because collapse will ultimately mean a a dramatic relocalization and you know i'm from washington state Uh, a lot of my activism is in british columbia british columbia and washington do not need all the forests they're logging the reason that you know that the demand is so high is because people want to build houses out in the desert in phoenix and the chinese want to build you know suburbs in china and it's hard not to see a collapse as a relief, but I al- I'm also not trying to, I'm not, I, I don't personally think that a collapse is going to happen very quickly. I think it's going to take a long time. And I think in the meantime, I think in fact, I would, I would, I would wish that a collapse would happen really quickly, but I don't see any evidence for it. I see it being long and slow. <laughs> and I think that the biggest challenge that we have now is coping with the collapse and figuring out how to live in a time when we are in a collapsing world and do what, everything that we can to help less of the world collapse and pick pick areas that we can keep as strongholds of biodiversity and also figure out how the hell we're going to live as sustainable human communities because without, without sustainable human communities whatever people survive the collapse are just going to you know be repeating the wrongs of the past and i'd much rather it be a bunch of you know people who listen to this podcast like <laughs> hippie minded people who want to be back on the land rather than a bunch of you know uh fascists in in idaho <laughs> I've got a very strong fascist audience. <laughs> uh, apologies to you fascists out there. Uh, how do you, how old are you? I'm, I just turned 20. Okay. So you're 20. You've been steeping in this toxic brew of despair and hopelessness for, you know, most of your adolescence. And, and I don't know if you consider yourself an adult at this point, but whatever adult <laughs> life you've had, you've, you've been in it. How do you keep your shit together psychologically? So, yeah, I mean, it's... Or do you? Um, I, 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 I you think, seem like a happy guy. I, I think, like, I, I, I think I'm, I'm generally a positive person, which helps. But I think a lot of the time you're in these... You're seeing really ter- terrible stuff happening to the environment. And then you're seeing people who stand up for the environment get arrested to the tune of thousands of people getting arrested and brutalized for the crime of saying, please don't cut down that tree. I, you know, I'm, I'm t- literally 12-year-olds getting arrested at Ferry Creek because they want, you know, something better for their future. And... That's really depressing. But for me, you know, it's easy to go into a forest and get really attached and fall in love with the trees. And I certainly do that. But then when it gets cut down, you're really heartbroken. You're very, you're very useless for a while. <laughs> and that's okay because you're like processing grief is part of it. It's really like you can't be effective if you can't process grief. Um, but one of the, one of the things that Roger Hallam, who's the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion said in the film was... I asked him what, what, what future he was fighting for. And he said, basically, that's, you know, that's not the question. The question is, what is it to be human? And he kind of thought I was being mm. stupid for asking that question. And I actually thought that was a really interesting point. What does it mean to be human in a time when we're essentially experiencing a ecological holocaust? And I, I stand by those words. You know, this is, this is an ecological holocaust. It's a holocaust for many indigenous communities. It is one of the worst crimes that has taken place in the history of the world. <laughs> And we're in the middle of it. And what does a good person do in response to that? 
And to me, it's like, it's fight like hell. And you won't win most of the fights. Like, I, I've tried to save dozens of areas and I've succeeded in a few. And like, not, I'm not saying it's just all me, my, my lonesome and my, you know, white save yourself. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's groups of people who succeed. But oftentimes it is one or two people that it takes to get the ball rolling. And, you know, the first, the first forest I ended up getting really involved with and saving part of, we filmed right after we were filming um, with the tree sitters in Northern California. Uh, we went to this forest, my dad and I had been filming and we went to this old growth forest that was being, we were, we, were, we like, I look at Google earth a lot. So I, I just wanted to go there. I thought it would be really cool. turns out it was on land owned by Warehouser, and Warehouser doesn't cut down old growth, but because of that, Warehouser was like, ah, it's a stranded asset. So they sold it to VTG Pactual, which is this company that also doesn't cut down old growth, but they sold it to this other local company that did cut down old growth. So they, we, we got there and we were going to go camping and like, you know, be in the forest for a bit and we got there and they were in the middle of clear cutting and we're like shit (laughs) and at that point i didn't have any activist connections so i started a petition online and started gaining some traction and we didn't save the forest um we saved 19 acres of the forest it was a 200 acre section of forest about 40 acres were actually old growth so we ended up saving about half the old growth and on the one hand that's devastating on the one hand that's not sufficient we need to save we can't just save what is that 10 percent of the forest and expect to live but on the other hand that's a measurable dif- difference. And if you have enough people doing that, you might go from, I don't know, they're predicting a million species go extinct in the coming decades. If we can go to a million to 900,000, that is a really big difference. That's a major difference. And even though, you know, there are, there are coral reefs. Like, um, I, I grew up abroad, so I, I grew up swimming on a lot of coral reefs. And it breaks my heart that essentially they're going to go extinct. You know, the water temperatures off of Florida were like 95 degrees the other day. Like, coral, like I don't, I'm not a coral ecologist, but I do know enough that they're bleached as hell, as hell right now. And they're probably not coming back. Yeah. And there are ecosystems for which it's, it's essentially too late. But there are also areas where we are just digging the knife in deeper and trying <laughs> trying to cut the heart out out of the last wild areas. And people can make a difference in that realm. And it's about it, it's it's about what what can you do when faced with the end of the world? What does it mean to be human? And what do you do like what do you do in response? And I think. I think a lot of people feel really paralyzed. I certainly felt paralyzed before I got involved in activism. But it's the ultimate therapy to see a, a tree that you saved um, and to see a direct, you know, something direct and go to a place that you sa- saved and see a squirrel or something. You know, it, it feels really good. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's what keeps you sane. But on the other hand, yeah, you, you definitely spiral out of into depression on a, <laughs> every few months. But, you know, that's what the world, like that's what the powers that be, I'm not saying there's a big conspiracy, but the powers that be benefit from your, complacency and you being paralyzed and you know the more opposition there is the more the more wins we'll have and i would rather be one of those few people out there opposing it for my entire life than drowning my sorrows in you know in cannabis or in alcohol or something at some dead-end job where i'm making a lot of money and feeling dead inside you know you mentioned before we started recording you mentioned earth first uh, that you, there was a town where you, you met a bunch of people who had been in Earth First. When I was your age, Earth First was sort of in, at their heyday. Um, uh, Edward Abbey had published the uh, the Monkey Wrench Gang, and, uh, and they were out there spiking trees and and uh, putting sugar in gas tanks of bulldozers that were cutting roads, yeah. you know, logging roads and all that. And um, <clears throat> it was. It was interesting to see the ferocity with which the system responded to that. You yeah. know, uh, first in language, calling them eco terrorists. Uh, man, when somebody when they 
government starts calling you a terrorist, watch out. That means they're they're coming. You're doing something right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, eco-terrorists. And then, then throwing people in prison for, you know, destroying a bulldozer, you got more time than second-degree murder, mm-hmm. you know? And it, it's ironic because... You know, Earth First, no compromise in defense of Mother Earth was was the slogan. But they also were very careful to never hurt anybody. Mm -hmm. And so they changed the law so that hurting a bulldozer was worse than hurting a person, you know? Yeah. Um, And that left me feeling kind of hopeless when I saw how ruthless the system was against that. Have in your from your perspective, do you think that activists today have learned from that or have they adapted their, their techniques so that they won't get caught in that same kind of legalistic trap? I think, um, there, there, there definitely isn't sort of the more earth liberation front type of activism happening anymore. I think there are people pushing for that (laughs) to happen. Um, but I think, I think for myself personally, I feel like the state, the state will absolutely crack down as like, they, they will crack down as soon as you give them an inch. And I'm not saying I don't like, I'm not saying that people who, you know, are blowing up pipelines are bad. Cause I certainly think that they're on, <laughs> they're on the right side of history there, but I also don't think I'm particularly useful from a prison cell. Um, but I think that the state has still used. Okay. So here, so I've been involved with the, uh, the Ferry Creek blockade. I don't know how much you know about that. A bit. It's uh, on Vancouver Island. Yeah. So. Yeah. So when I was actually, right when COVID happened, um, I was involved in the very beginning of that. Uh, so I, I monitored satellite imagery for um, old growth logging because you can there are sites where you can see satellite imagery on a daily basis from the Copernicus program. Hmm. There's another one called planet.com. And I was feeling dis- like a lot of despair around that because you, you go up there, it's, you, you, sh- you need to go. It's, un- it's like, it's out of this world. It's, it's trees like the redwoods getting cut down. It's just like, you can't believe it's even happening and a lot of people don't know. Um, but there was this one valley called Ferry Creek. It's on Pachidat territory, which is on the south southwestern side of Vancouver Island near Port Renfrew, south of Tofino. Mm-hmm. And the comp- a company there was trying to build a logging road into the headwaters. And I was kind of sounding the alarm about that. And then there are people on the ground who were like, well, we've been waiting for something. And, you know, a f- like a few days after we started talking, they had a set of blockade there. And I, at that point, I was like, I'm giving this, you know, I'm going to help in any way I can to, you know, raise awareness about this. And... Um, with, with that, they, uh, it turned into the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. So there were over, um, I think it was 1,195 arrests. And this was all in 2020 during the height of COVID Mm. and people were, you know, people were getting, being arrested right and left. Um, but when in response to that, the RCMP, the, 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 the RCMP weren't allowed to enforce for about eight, eight months because people were blocking roads, but technically that wasn't in violation of any rule. So the logging company had to go to a court and get an injunction. And the injunction basically gave the police permission to arrest people for blocking the road. So the way it worked um, in the 90s, back when there was this uh, protest called Clackwet Sound, and there were a lot of other blockades in the 90s. And that, before Ferry Creek, that was the biggest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history, and it ended up protecting a large amount of forests. Before that, they, they'd have to come up to you when you're sitting on the road and read you the long injunction and say, you're violating this. Are you going to move? And then if you said no, they'd arrest you and you, they put you on the side of the road and then they move the, They take the trucks in. With Ferry Creek, they brought in militarized police, you know, with pepper spray, with helicopters. They, they, they spent over $20 million arresting hippies at this one valley. And it was more than the timber was worth. <laughs> so the amount of, the amount of, uh, of 
pressure that the state brought to bear, just basically saying, basically, screw you guys. And it was all, you know, it's pretty much all young people. These were like, these are beautiful people. None of them were doing anything illegal. You know, there's, there's allegations that, oh, a couple people spiked a tree, but like, that's the worst of it. <laughs> there was no, there, no, nothing was blown up. Nothing really ever happened there, except for people peacefully sitting in the road, sitting in the trees. Uh, people were in the units while they were cutting trees. So people would stand in front of the trees and then the RCMP would come, drag them away. They'd cut down the tree type stuff. And the, the injunction needed to be renewed because it was first, I think it was first given for a six month period. And when it was renewed, the the BC Supreme Court justice basically saw what the RCMP had been doing. They'd not been letting media in. They'd, they'd been breaking every rule that the injunction laid out. And they were like, we're not going to grant this injunction again because the RCMP are literally breaking the rules. The RCMP are the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So the, the, the government here is in the wrong. Hmm. And of course, then the t- company went back and cried, you know, cried about, oh, well, we're losing money and you're not upholding our rights. So the Court of Appeals put it back in place. But the 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 uh the rcmp basically have a that was giving them a free pass to do whatever the hell they wanted and it's 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 not like it's not even it's not it's it's really impressive how much they they attacked these peaceful people in the woods because it and it very much shows you that you know the system isn't there to and to empower people like we don't live in a democracy we live in a i don't know what the term is but we live in a in a oligarchy actually you know in a sense where it's the whole system is designed around colonizing the land and i don't know how familiar people are with are with colonization Uh, i know that's like that's something that a lot of people especially before they get into a lot of activism especially on in the u.s are like people do people don't think about a colonization in 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 uh environmentalism but colonization is basically the process is what this entire society is based off of so we are we're a society that uses up an area. Civilization itself uses up an area, goes kicks people off their land, uses up that area. And now what we essentially have in the West is colonies. And you might not seem like you're living in a colony, but you are. You're living in some form of resource colony because, you know, if you're in an agricultural area, are they leaving any of that land alone for the for the animals that live there? No. <laughs> they're they're pretty much using up all the usable land to have corn colonies or soy colonies. Or in my case, I live next to a twenty five thousand acre industrial tree farm. And I think that's what made me an environmentalist was going back there and just seeing these colonies of tree plantations and as as sad and like dejected as they were as these little almost like palm oil plantations, it's it's uh you still want to fight for them because you know what they could be and you see the big stumps and you wanna protect them. But with with you know what happened at Ferry Creek, you could see how it's almost like the colonial hive mind just sees people opposing extraction and realizes that that's a fundamental threat to our way of life because our way of life is absolutely based on extraction. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people talk about you know they're finding graves in Canada of missing and murdered, uh, or not missing and murdered Indigenous women, but they're they're finding graves of children who went to res- residential schools. And a lot of the elders involved at Ferry Creek actually were at residential schools and have only now been able to reconnect to the land through Ferry Creek. And, you know, you hear about that and you're like, oh, well, that's in the past. We, you know, the, the government will say truth and reconciliation. And then they'll say, we're going to have truth and reconciliation by giving you a logging company and letting you cut down the last old growth. And that's, in the, by and large, what's happening out there. Or it's just a casino. Like, yeah, or, or a casino. And it's like, that's the same relationship. All right. We're back after making adjustments to cool this place down a little bit. Um have you, what do you think of the Dark Mountain movement? I haven't heard of it. It's, I forget the name of the environmentalist who basically, 
had the kind of crisis I was asking you how you avoid. I think he's British or Irish. And, and he essentially said, oh, it's too late. It's too late. So at this point, um, I'm no longer trying to stop the destruction. I'm trying to figure out ways to deal with it psychologically and sort of just accept the, the inevitability of it. Um, and it, it's sort of become a an offshoot of the environmental movement of, you know, it's almost like hospice care mm-hmm. versus uh, intensive care. Yeah, is that the guy, and I think he's in Utah, or he used to be a professor at Arizona University, had the nature's bat last? Or, I don't know. No. I, I, th- I think he's British, the, okay. the, the guy I'm thinking of. I, I, is that Jim Bendel? I, I don't remember okay. his name. Yeah. We could stop and Google it or, or just... <laughs> well, no, that that's okay. I mean, I think if, in that... In, in that mindset, it's I can understand it because, like, it's really paralyzing before you start doing stuff. Um, when I was younger, I felt very paralyzed, and I, that's why I started the film. I just needed to do something to feel like I was making a difference. And through the film, I've gotten, like, I'm very much involved in all of the forest defense throughout Gastacadia. Or not all of it, but a lot of it. <laughs> and um, I think that the... I think that it's tempting to say we're completely fucked. And if you watch the film, you might be saying, well, wait a minute. You just said we're completely fucked and we're probably completely fucked. <laughs> but it's not black and white. They're like between being com- fucked and completely fucked, there are shades of gray. <laughs> and in those shades of gray, there are a lot of species. That's the blurb I'm going to use for this episode. <laughs> there are a lot of shades of gray in there. Uh-huh. And... Like one of the species that I've I've been kind of working with a lot, uh, it's called Old Growth Speckle Belly Lichen, and it only lives in the drip zone, basically underneath the canopy of yellow cedar trees, and that's up in up on Vancouver Island. And I found it in like three or four spots so far. And will it save those spots? We hope so, but you know, there's no actual protections for them. Um, but the point being is that they're a very niche little species that you can save, and even if it's not saving a species. It's saving a forest. Like if, if I guess, I guess when, when people say, oh, well, it's screwed anyway, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, have a nice life. Then it's like, would you say that if it was your grandmother being killed? You know what I mean? Like, I think, I think when you connect to, when you spend all of your time with these trees and in, the, in these places, you kind of realize that they are just as mu- as important as we are individually. And I, I say that in all honesty, I think, I, I, I don't, I don't think that there's a, uh, we're, we're taught this great chain of existence where we're at the top. It's like, if anything, we're one of the stupider creatures because we're destroying the planet we live on. We're very savvy, sure. Like, we're very savvy, obviously. <laughs> like, we've gone to the moon and all that. But, you know, squirrels aren't destroying the world that they live on. We're the only ones that are doing that. And I think we are in a position where we can say, oh, yeah, I mean, we can just enjoy the goodies of of a culture destroying the planet. But I don't think I could live with myself if I did. And I hope that, I hope that people realize that you can you can live your life and you can have a life and have a good life while also just fighting to save the planet. And there's a lot of ways that you can do that. I mean, I think a lot of people feel like again, feel paralyzed. Just taking small, like small steps to get involved. You know, the first thing is, you know, one of the things finding out with, you know, making climate change documentaries, people don't want to hear about it. <laughs> it's really depressing. You want mm. to avoid it. Um Learning about what's happening, even if you can't deal with the fact that the Great Barrier Reef is dying and that the Amazon rainforest is going to be a savanna in 50 years and that lions are going to go extinct and that pretty much every creature that you see on TV is going to go extinct in the next 100 years, 
what you can do is say what's happening in your own backyard because ultimately we need to relocalize. Right. So, I mean, it wouldn't make sense per se for you to get involved in saving redwoods because you live in, in you know, Colorado and you, you could, you can get and save, save or get involved in preventing more subdivisions from going in. You could involve in getting, you know, getting and stopping, you know, more drainage of the aquifer. Like there's a lot of different ways people can be involved. And I think that it's a bit of a cop out to say, oh, we're all doomed. So we can't do anything. It's like, we, there are, there, there are a lot of things like I, I, I'm kind of specialized in the activism where you're going out there, you're really dealing with the front lines, you know, whether it's people being on the front lines and actually blockading or whether it's like going to these forests and documenting them and like suing, you know, companies. <laughs> um, but you don't have to be in that aspect of it. There's a lot, like if you have money for Pete's sakes, buy a forest, protect it. You know, if you have, if you have time, volunteer with, you know, groups that are trying to make the environment better. Um, and there's also the really important side of things, which we were talking about earlier, is if we're going to have a healthy human society, like there aren't very, very, very many societies that know how to do that. We're all very screwed up people as we're all as a civilization. We're like health-wise, we're screwed up. Mentally, we're screwed up. Like my, my generation is more depressed than any other generation. I mean, and can you blame them? But also at the same time, there's a lot of work to be done in realizing that we're one with the earth. And I know that sounds really spiritual and hip, like hippy-dippy and you know, I, I'm not <laughs> either way. If you, if you're, if you're a scientific rationalist and say, oh, well, you know, the earth's proved to me that the earth's alive. It, it, like treating as the earth as if it is alive and as if all the creatures around you are sentient beings or is going to create a much better wor- world for you hmm. and creating, I mean, it doesn't matter if you, if you literally believe the trees are talking to you or you figuratively like it, or if you believe that they're important for climate change, for biodiversity, for all these reasons, either way, it's going to make a better world. And I think that yeah, I mean, seeing it through the eyes of the non-human world and trying to do everything that you can to help the non-human world is is the only thing we can be doing at that at this time. And while while at the same time creating communities that are actually resilient and actually try to unfuck us psychologically, <laughs> because I mean that's one of the things I think about a lot is a lot of people will say, "Well, I can't possibly have children in a world that's doomed," and I sympathize and understand and don't disagree per se. But I also think, well, you can't have a healthy society if it's just one, you know, one generation at the same time. So it's, there's a lot, the point being is there's a lot of different things people can be doing Mm. and you should be doing whatever you're best at, but you should be doing something. Mm. See what I mean? Not only for the potential impact it has on the struggle, but also for your own mental health. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think, I think a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to figure out how they can deal with the fact that the world's dying and you know, going to Fairy Creek in these places, even though you're, you know, there's, you know, there, there's essentially a police state coming after you. They spent $20 million at Fairy Creek, you know, trying to get people. And even though all that's happening, the fact that people are out there resisting, you know, it, it changes people. It makes them realize that they are in a way the masters of their own destiny. And Mm -hmm. it makes them realize that I can make a measurable impact because a lot of people feel like a waste of space. Right. And I felt like a waste of space before I started doing activism. And there's nothing better to counteract that feeling than doing something. Right. And one of the things like I, I, I say is like in terms of steps you can do, if you don't, if you don't know what to do, if you're not like in a position where you can go to a protest camp right away, you can start consuming a lot less because that's a very measurable, like I don't really believe in, oh, individual action, you know, we're going to buy the green water bottle instead of the non, that's like, that's not going to change civilization, but consuming less is good. <laughs> um, spending 25% of your income, either supporting activists supporting your own activism, because I know a lot of people, like I couldn't spend 25% of my income on supporting other people, but supporting your own activism 
or buying, you know, buying a section of desert that somebody else would do something with or buying a section of forest somebody else would do something with and just not, just leave it there, let it grow because in a lot of ways the land will heal itself. And then spending an hour, at least an hour a day, just learning about environmental issues that affect you and that are in, in your area. And from learning about them, you'll start seeing, okay, well, you know, if, it, if there's this, this project going in, a lot of times none of, this, none of this stuff is opposed. So one of the, I've mostly been involved with Fairy Creek, but I've also been involved in trying to save like the hundred year old, basically next generation of old growth on uh, public lands on, in Washington state. And these are Department of Natural Resource lands that are managed to produce revenue for schools, actually. <laughs> so uh, basically there's, um, they produce about $50 per student and they log about 3 million acres of land that they have in this trust to log. Um, and through, do, like, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I forget my, my exact point with that, but... <laughs> well, different kinds of activism, d- different yeah. ways of being involved. You're talking about cutting down consumption, mm-hmm. reducing consumerism. I really like your idea of of sustainable community as almost like a, like an intellectual seed bank or something. Mm-hmm. So that you sort of carry forward non-hierarchical, egalitarian ways of interacting with other people um, so that when the environment, both economic and, and, and biological, collapses, there will be people who know how to mm-hmm. move ahead. Uh, who can disseminate that knowledge. There's a woman here in Crestone. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm in Crestone. You mm-hmm. know, we were talking about earlier how we ended up here, but the sort of cycle or philosophical trek that led me here was a desire to live in a community that's small enough where people can take care of each other and actually know each other, you know, as yeah. opposed to having everything become institutionalized and run through government agencies and, right. you know, NGOs and all that. It's like to keep, to have something on a human scale and to yeah. actually live in that way is really interesting and, and illustrative uh, of things that need to be remembered. But there's a woman here, Robin Blankenship, who's one of the best known teachers of indigenous survival skills mm. in the world. She's been teaching for 35 years or something here. So just that kind of stuff, right? Like just re- learning or teaching how to do things like build a shelter or tan a hide or, mm-hmm. you know, set a snare. And, and or, or last week, um, Anya went on a course of uh, someone local who was teaching about medicinal plants and edible plants and, you know, now yeah. she looks just after one day, we're walking around and she's like, oh, that's, uh, yeah. you know, there's yeah. that and there's that. And, oh, this is really good for hemorrhoids and this is good for, you mm-hmm. know, d- indigestion. And it's like you see the environment totally differently. Yeah. You know, just just spend one day in a workshop and suddenly well, the world changes. I think that's one of the things is like the way you see see the environment around you. I think a lot of people, especially people who... I've lived in cities their entire lives. And even especially like loggers, they see the environment. It's like, oh my God, there's bears. It's all dangerous. Mm-hmm. When you're at, like at Ferry Creek, it was really amazing because people, people there saw like, it was, you know, the safe place was the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so you just become very attuned towards not being afraid of land and realizing that in a way the land is on your side. Um, but yeah, I think that's ex- like, ex- like one of the, one of the things is, I don't know who said this, but Mar- I think it might've been Napoleon, but Mar- armies march on their stomachs. 
Mm. And not to say that we're having an insurrection per se, but um, but having having these communities is going to be necessary because there's a lot of a lot of fight ahead in terms of trying to stop you know the the oncoming wave of lithium mining, stop uh, deep sea mining, stop you know logging the last of the old growth, stop you know logging all of the rest of everything. <laughs> you know there's there's a lot of like industry is persistent. Like they they are they are trying to get the la- at the last of everything, and. I think as as people realize that climate change is here, as you know, we're starting to have heat waves that start actually killing a lot of people. Like the Middle East is set to be uninhabitable in the next like several decades. Like people are going to die. A lot of people are going to die. And as that happens, I think a lot more people are going to be aware and have be be fighting. And activists can't like I've I've been like I've been an activist like I mean directly doing forest defense stuff since 2020. And most of the, my time is spent on a computer in my house alone. Mm. And then, you know, a portion of it's spent out in the front lines and like in, in these forests. But I can't say that, oh, I'm, I'm living in the, with aligned with my values. I'm living on a computer. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's how a lot of activism is, is these days. But it's going to be critically important. Like, I certainly don't want to live in some, you know, solitary apartment by myself on a computer for my entire life. You know, you want to, like... Like there needs to be a space for activists and people who are dealing with the loss of what's happening to the planet and dealing with the trauma that happens when you stand up against this civilization. That people need places to go back to, and in a way, that's the stomach part of the movement. <laughs> there's the mm. there's the. I mean, maybe that's a bit reductive, but it's the it's the regenerative part versus the. I mean, with us, we're opposing everything. We're oppo- we're oppo- like. It's never, oh, yeah, you should totally save that forest. Good on you guys. It's like, no, please don't cut that one down because they're doing a lot more cutting than they are saving. And yeah, that, that can definitely burn you out. And for, for this to be sustainable, we need, we need a lot more communities. And in the end, those are going to be, because eventually, eventually society will start collapsing and the people that are able to sustain themselves will be people who've prepared, which are often people with money. And they'll be pe- pe- people with political power. There'll be, you know, far right religious groups in the middle of nowhere who've been, you know, prepping for the end times forever. And hopefully it'll also be us. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I'm under no illusions about about living sustainably with 8 billion people on the planet. I I don't think it's possible. I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, we should go start. You die, you die, you die, you don't die. It's like, no, that's not that. That would be leaning back on authoritarianism. Hell no. Like, right. but the fact is, the we all, we've overshot the earth carrying capacity and a lot of like. Whether we like it a lot, a lot or not, whether we like it or not, a lot of there's going to be a lot of suffering and a lot less people in under a hundred years. Well, it's happening already. I mean, de- yeah. demographically, there's a collapse in China and Europe and mm-hmm. U.S. Not as much, um, but there's a <clears throat> geopolitical strategist I follow, named Peter Zion, who talks about demographics a lot. And mm, I, I, yeah, I read his book. Uh, the end of the world is just the beginning. Yeah, that one. That's his most recent book. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's interesting. I don't agree with everything he says. I don't, I don't agree with everything anybody says, but um, but I do think the demographic um, lens is an interesting way mm-hmm. to look at what's happening in the world. And and he's you know strangely kind of hopeful in a way. Maybe he doesn't see it as hope because because of course economic growth is tied to population growth. Yeah. So he's trying to prepare people for the shock of, you know, China collapsing because mm-hmm. they don't have enough young people to take care of the old people and yeah. you know, keep up demand and consumption and all that. But from my perspective, I look at it as like, well, you know, we've got it we've got to 
reduce global population at some point. It can't keep growing forever. Yeah. You know? So let's let's talk about it and let it, as you're saying, it ha- it can happen through attrition. It doesn't hap- have to have, you know, when I talk about this, people are like, oh, you want to decide who dies? Like, no, just let people, yeah. let more people Especially die. Especially because you'd probably, like, uh, like in my, in, at least in my perspective, activists would probably be on the, yeah, you're problem people. <laughs> right, yeah, let the Republicans die. Uh <laughs> No, but just just let people die the way they do and just have fewer kids. I mean, yeah. you know, and I think that's the most hopeful way of thinking about it is, you know, that we do have enough time to basically have a, a population implosion where people have less kids. And I think people are having less kids. But the problem is consumption is still going up. And for a lot of the world who are living in sacrifice zones and in essentially resource colonies, um, you know, they want a better standard of living because they were deprived of it after after colonization. Right. And instead of like none, none, you know, global development isn't shifting people towards sustainable ways of living. They're shifting them towards make cheap shit for us, you know, and then maybe you'll be able to afford a, a place with an air conditioner one day so you don't die in the heat. <laughs> and I think the problem is population or consumption is rapidly growing. And sure, there's a degree of some of that is in the developing world, but most of that's like the the, the amount of the footprint of houses over the <laughs> over the past fifty years has skyrocketed. I don't know the exact numbers, but it was something like. It was less than a thousand square feet the average in the fifties, mm. and now it's like I think it's close to three thousand square feet in America, and people are having thirds, fourth, fifth houses. You know, in the, in the, um, when you're fighting against the timber industry, one of the things they say is, "Oh, well, you all you crazy leftists, you want affordable housing for poor people, but well, what do you think we're building?" It's like, yeah, you're building five hundred thousand dollar houses for rich people second homes, like mansions. And, and yeah. frankly, like what what we like a best case scenario to me would look like if the government's realized that their entire existence is is the problem <laughs> and we start ratcheting down so you know don't build more housing because where are the trees going they're building houses in the desert it's ridiculous like that's where the old growth's going and i think that if you start ratcheting down ha- start having war gardens like they did in world war ii there's this book uh that i read when i was a kid called rascal and the kitten has is basically growing food for like that that's his con- contribution to the war effort right not the same saying we should be going to war but there should be a model like that where it's like we need to leave live with less because the baby boomers, who are essentially the the elders of our society, are the most consumptive generation that the world has ever seen. And there, before that was the greatest generation that lived through World War II and the Great Depression. And they learned to live with a, with a lot less. And in America, that's what we need to be doing. And I don't want to I don't want to say that you know it's through individual action. We need to like we need to dramatically relocalize and say we're not going to keep building more shit. We're not going to be we're going to be taking electricity offline and everybody's going to learn to live with less and eventually ratchet down in such a way that we have sustainable communities. I just don't think we have 200 years to do that. Right. So I, I think that we should be fighting towards that, but we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure that in 20 years, it's going to be so bad that they're going to do something about it because 20 years ago, that's what they were saying. And, you know, 20 years ago, scientists were saying that the 20 teens would be the last, you know, last, 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 Last chance to stop climate change, and here we are. Last year, we burnt more coal than any other year in human history. So, I don't expect things to change in time. And I, I yeah, I don't have very much hope for 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 reform. I think that we need to fight like hell to undermine the parts of civilization that are extracting the last of what the Earth has to offer, and start creating communities that you know source their food from local areas. Like the only sustainable logging operation I've ever seen, and I've I've been to, I think I counted the other day. I think I've been to like two, 300 forests that have been clear cut or that are going to be clear cut. 
the only what the only place that I've ever seen a sustainable logging operation is this one guy in Alaska. He runs the Teneke Logging Company. It's one of these tiny little towns in southeast Alaska, and the Forest Service sells him like I think it's like a couple dozen trees at a time. He takes out like it's on a half acre, and he takes out like half of the trees and leaves a half or two thirds or something. And he gets like he knows that okay that tree is going to go to build that school over in that community and he's going to build it over there. That's the only sustainable logging operation I've seen. Mm. And 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 like in a lot of in a lot of ways, a lot of these rural areas can be sustainable. The problem is is that we're in a globalized world where all of the resources of the lands are going into cities, which require um, colonial exploitation for their own existence. And you know people talk about oh well green cities. Have you heard about Neom the the, the line in the desert? that Saudi Arabia is building a 10 uh, or 100, 100 mile long or 100 kilometer long line in the desert and it's going to be a city and it's going to be a utopia <laughs> and it's going to have a train through the middle of it and they're saying, oh, this is the future for, for the environment. And it's like, you're going to split a desert in half. There's going to be no migration. The sides of it are going to be mirrors which can kill every single bird in the area and it's going to be ruled by an authoritarian dictatorial regime. <laughs> and, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's like that's, that's the model that people are trying to advance. And we need what, to be the opposite of that. What's the high? The tallest building in the world is in like Doha or someplace mm-hmm. in, in the Middle East. I was reading about this recently. I think maybe that's where the Olympics were. Maybe I was reading about it in preparation for the Olympics. Anyway, it's the tallest building in the world, and they for some the, the, there's no because of where it is in the desert or next to the Red Sea or wherever it is. They couldn't. There's no sewer. So the entire building, there's a constant line of trucks that goes into the bottom of the building that get loaded with sewage, <laughs> and they truck it out and dump it in the desert. Yeah. There's something metaphorical about that. <laughs> it's like, you know, they're so proud. It's the tallest building in the world, mm-hmm. but they can't deal with their own shit, yeah. literally. Well, and I think that that's, like, psychologically, one of the things, you know, you get a lot of rural resentment i think of the u.s as like part of trump uh and i think it's part part of it's valid is that people in in i don't know people in cities um are very disconnected to the land and in a lot of cases interestingly enough they're more environmentally oriented it's just a lot of people don't really know how the world works right in 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 in, you know the actual environment and it's like people have told me that there isn't any clear-cut logging and i'm like I'm sorry, but how stupid are you? Have you ever looked out at the airplane window? Have you ever looked at the hill on the highway? <laughs> um, people are just very disconnected. And part of that disconnect is that people in cities, like that, like that's why people are so miserable, is they're, they're forced into jobs because that's the only way they see of sustaining themselves. They don't see the land as the way to sustain themselves. They don't see a way to live off in relationship to the land, which is, I think, what a lot of like farmers, even though farming isn't, isn't really good either for the most part, um, but you know, a lot of farmers will say, "Well, at least you know, I have a, I, I know, I, I have a connection, a relationship to the land." Even loggers say that, even though they're destroying the land. And part of the ways that the system can say, "Oh, you know, you're you're 20 and you're going to be homeless on the streets if you don't come work for our company, and you're going to be miserable your entire life, but at least you're going to get some, you know, goodies that aren't really that worth it when you're 50 or 60 or 70 or whenever you retire, and then you have a few years on the golf course before you die." Right. Like the only way they can make that, it's almost like blackmail. But the only way they can say that is if you don't have a place to go. And right. I think that's the central, like that, that's, that's one of the mechanisms that a lot of people are being disempowered by is not having a place to go. And again, that's what, it goes back to having these communities where people who want to live sustainably can actually go, right. you know? Right. 
Yeah, again, you know, you're, you're talking my language. Here in Crestown, there are three, I think, community gardens that you can just donate a few hours a week and you get a share of the veggies when they, they come to. And there are Mennonites who come to town and mm-hmm. sell eggs and, uh, you know, milk and you know, cheese and stuff that they make. And they, they're living in a local farm. There's a, I don't know if you guys saw the yaks when you came in. We saw some llamas, I think. Are, yeah. are those yaks? They're right? llamas, but there's a big yak okay. ranch. Yeah, on the main road coming mm-hmm. coming into Crestone. Some guys out there raising yaks. They're happy. It's 8,000 feet, so it's, <laughs> they think they're in Tibet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, places exist like that where you can still have a, a local relationship to your food and, uh, you know, your local fire department. And, you know, everybody knows the UPS guy. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, it's... It's strange. And you're right. I, I was I read an interesting survey recently. They they were looking at like what jobs people are psychologically most happy in. Yeah. And ironically, they're jobs where people work outside. Mm-hmm. And loggers were one of the happiest. I, I, I actually saw that. I saw, that. I saw that loggers were the happiest people. And it's like, <laughs> I, I get it. Like you have that much, as much cognitive dissonance as you do while you're out there. And just like, it's a pretty forest. Like I can, yeah. I can understand. Yeah, you're out in the weather. <laughs> you smell the rain. Yeah. I mean, you're destroying shit, but you're, yeah. you're in a beautiful place. And it's also one of the most dangerous jobs. Yeah. It's interesting how those things I, line up. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people like... You, you know, you people go to national parks and they go to, it's it's something different when you go to a mountaintop that you have to hike up cliffs to get to and you mm. get up there and you're, you know, <laughs> you're like grateful that you made it up the top, to the top of the mountain and, you know, it's snowy and you have, you, ha- you can almost feel, it's almost like you have a little leash to, to the, to the, to being alive <laughs> yeah and you're out there and you, you know, you know, you, as long as you know your limits and you, you see these places, it's, it feels, it feels very sacred to be in areas, especially Fairy Creek where you're up well, up in these areas, one time I, I I was up in the mountains in the snow. I was putting up, um, I, I was doing wildlife survey stuff, and uh, I was up on top of a mountain in, in ten feet of snow. So I was on top of the ten feet of snow because it was all I'd crusted over, and it was me and a wolf up there because there was a big wolf prince, mm. and it's just yeah, there's there's, I, I, yeah, I mean there's nothing. That's something that people are lacking is, I don't know if you've ever watched like Hayao Miyazaki movies or like that, that they're they're very co- mm. popular in my generation. Like uh, there's one called Princess Mononoke. It's it's about basically an industry stro- destroying one of the last ancient forests, and it's a it's fiction. But that, you know that resonates with so many you know um, young people who are sitting in their basement who've never <laughs> who've never been out of the city because people people want that relationship. Like that's what we're missing. Isn't that what Avatar is about? Oh yeah, it's basically Avatar. Same same story. Dances with Wolves. All that mm. kind of that same essential story. Right. That's what we're missing, and people seem to think that listening to the land and being in a relationship with the land is a metaphor. But like when you're out there, it's like, it's, it's not a metaphor. <laughs> and what about yeah. the fact that you never prop, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's very likely you never would have gone to Ferry Creek if they weren't logging it. Mm-hmm. Right. So a lot of these beautiful places that are left that, that in theory, right. We want to defend most of us would never go to most of it, like upper Amazon. Yeah. Right? I'm never going to the upper Amazon, mm-hmm. right? Like I know they're logging it. I know it's horrible. I know it's burning. Yeah. I wish it weren't, but it's not part of my experience. Right. I mean, I think part of it is that all of the easy areas, like if you live in Vancouver, you're living on the site of the tallest tree in the world a hundred years ago. Hmm. So the tallest trees in the world weren't actually 
uh, weren't actually redwoods. They were Douglas firs, and they grew in Vancouver. Really? Yeah. So there are mm. 400 plus foot Douglas firs in Vancouver. And it's like all the easy places have have been destroyed. Right. <laughs> and it's almost you can almost think about it as roadways are are, are in, in a lot of ways the arteries of civilization, the arteries of commerce. You go out the you know the logging roads are like the little like tiny little blood mm. vessels connecting to whatever right. tissue. And once you get off of that and like out. Out of, capillaries. Yeah, capillaries. <laughs> so you, you get, yeah, you, you, you do have to get out to really remote areas where this is happening because that's all that's left. But also, to some degree, you know, a lot of people just take it for granted. It's like, oh, yeah, they're logging, you know, in, in my rural community in, in Mason County of Washington, it's um, basically a big tree farm. It's owned by one family, pretty much, the, the Reed family. They own 3.2 or 2.3 million acres of land and they, log it on 40-year rotations constantly. And for a lot of people, it's like, oh, well, it's not, what, what can we do? It's not worth protecting anymore. It's so destroyed. But it's like, yeah, with that attitude, your grandchildren are going to love you. <laughs> you know, like, that. You, I, I think that there are a lot of places where it's like, you'll even see this if you live in the suburbs. Like, a, another suburb going in. It's like, have you checked to see if there are, if there are uh, prairie dogs there? Because there probably are. <laughs> there is actually, destruct, there is destruction happening if you look for it. And, I'd say focus on what's close to you, but also, I mean, to, to me, uh, I live on the Hood Canal in Washington, and the Hood Canal is a nesting ground for a seabird called the marbled murrelet, and the marbled murrelet lives in Ferry Creek. So it so it's one of its critical habitats is the Hood Canal, and it lives there when it's in the ocean, and then it goes and flies up into Ferry Creek. So it's like we're all we're all connected. We just need to start learning to see the fact that we are we're all part we, we're all part of the same planet, I guess. And I know that seems very cliche, but I don't think that just because it's happening over the mountain, like a lot of people won't go there on their own. But once you do go there, like you won't regret it. <laughs> right. You know, it's and I think I've had a bit of an obsession with this. Like whenever there's a big mine, like we go and see the mine just to check it out. Like whenever there's and whenever there's anything, you just you almost start wanting to know exactly what's happening on the land because ignorance is blessed in a way. And once you start seeing things, you just you'd rather you'd rather there be people knowing what's happening. I mean, for me, it's like. I go to force even if I don't think there's a chance of saving them just to see it and to, 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 to I guess, have somebody remember it. You ever read Edward Abbey? Yeah. <laughs> there's a, I don't know if it's in Desert Solitaire or one of his other books, but he goes to, I think it's the Glen Canyon when they were going to flood it. Yeah. And it was exactly for that. It was like he, he wanted to go in there with a friend and canoes or something just to like see these places that were about to be submerged forever mm. he thought forever here yeah. we are <laughs> 40 years later and they're they're coming up again because of the drought you know yeah crazy i think that in a way when you go out and witness these areas it kind of it makes you a bystander when you're seeing it and once you're a bystander it's like it, it's it's the bystander effect where People in a lot of ways won't, won't act even if they know something's horrible ha is happening. And for me, I think the most important thing is breaking that. So, like when I was a kid, like I, I, you know, um, like I don't know, I, I knew the oceans were dying. So, you know, when I saw, you know, when I saw crabs, for instance, that had been caught from the ocean when we were living in Thailand, I felt terrible because, you know, not to say that nobody should be eating crabs, but those crabs are part of, you know, but that's coming from the ocean, which is dying. Um, and at one point, I was just started, you know, buying animals and putting them back in the water because at least, you know, and, and I, you know, that doesn't change the world, but I'm sure they appreciated it. And I think that it's, it's breaking it. it that's, that's a very small thing, but it's symbolic because 
it's it's breaking the bystander effect. And I think that right. w- once you see these areas, you're faced with a choice to go back to the bliss of being in the city where it's all theoretical, it's all on TV. You can go watch something different on Netflix or you can go listen to Fox News or The Daily Wire and pretend that everything's all fine. You know? <laughs> and I think that I think that the biggest thing is, you know, and this is what what what's the, kind of concludes the film is, you know, don't be a bystander in the death of the living world. Mm. And even it's hard seeing these places to get destroyed, but it's necessary because if nobody ever sees them, and if nobody ever goes there to see, like how do you know there could be there could be a spotted owl sitting on the tree, but if you don't go and check, then <laughs> you know that area is going to get cut down anyway. And by going to these places, I think that's in a lot of ways the first step. It'll inspire you to action because a lot of them, like it's, you wouldn't think it, but there are places that are absolutely incredible that are left and you become very loyal to them, I guess. So are you going to make any more films? So, right. I mean, with the, with Eden's Last Chance, I, I made it because I felt like I couldn't, I wasn't doing anything and I, I, I needed, I needed to do something. And in a lot of ways, uh, so especially as I started making the film, I realized that there weren't a lot of people say there were a lot of people who made films about climate change, said it basically we're fucked, and then were like, we're gonna go look at solar panels. And it's like it felt that felt intellectually dishonest to me <laughs> because that's not gonna save us. A little bit of like it, in fact, it's gonna probably make a lot of things worse. I mean, I don't know if you've if you've heard about the um, I forget what it's called, but it's basically a phenomenon where whenever more electricity or more a new resource is added, it doesn't actually replace. It's added on top of, and that's right. what we're seeing right now. Right. Um, also, when when it's cheaper, people use more of it. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's it's this intellectually dishonest thing. It's like Al Gore does this, where it's like we're going to change the light bulb and buy an electric car, and if you're poor, we'll fuck you. <laughs> you know, like that's that's not where the way we're going to save the planet. You get tax breaks. Yeah. Like, like right now, there's a seventy five hundred dollar tax um deduction if you buy an electric vehicle a hundred thousand dollar tesla yeah. right but you need to have a seventy five hundred dollar tax liability to get the tax break and yeah. poor people aren't paying seventy five hundred bucks yeah. in federal taxes so and, it's bullshit and far better just if you have a hundred thousand dollars to spend on a car buy a beater you know a beater car for ten thousand dollars and spend the rest on trying to protect a forest you know right and right. yeah that's why i think people were i didn't feel like anybody was saying the honest truth that we are pretty much screwed and if we are screwed then what and i think no the fact that nobody asks the then what is part of the problem because if you start if you start like the environmental movement in a way has created this next problem of um like a furthering of the mass extinction caused by windmills which will kill many 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 birds caused by solar panels which apart from you know you have to think about where these stuff this stuff comes from they don't create all this all these metals overnight like it takes a lot of mining and a lot of extraction and now, you know, they're looking at mining in the deep sea. They're, there's this place called Thacker Pass where people are trying to stop a lithium mine from going in. So there's, there's, in a way, we asked for this problem, and that's because we weren't intellectually honest and didn't realize the problem isn't, you know, you, that you're driving the wrong car. The problem is that we live in a world where we, we destroy the world as a way of maintaining our own world, you know? Right, but, but the problem then becomes, unless our own world is destroyed, there's no way to preserve the other world, right? If it's yeah. an either-or... Except that the other world doesn't depend on us; we depend on it. And right in the but, end, but we are human, and we live in the human world. And you yeah. know, if it's true what you're saying that the human world only exists at the expense of the natural well, world, I think that this is something that a lot of like indigenous activists will have a problem with in terms of like a lot of people will say, "Well, we, there's no possible way we can live. Humans are destroying the world. We're, we're destructive. We're inherently op- opposed to the." world but then if you look at tribes that lived in harmony with the or in general harmony like there were you know 
there's there's potential like the mammoth went extinct because of people like there's i'm not saying it's all you know it's all perfect but relatively speaking we were living in we were living pretty sustainably for a really long time. Yeah, but that's a very low population level. That's, that's yeah. So in problem. a way, we will have to give up our, I guess, dominion over the earth. Right. And, I mean, they were still driving herds of bison off cliffs, you right, know, right. And, and eating one percent of them and leaving the rest to rot. I mean, yeah, yeah. The the whole sort of notion. I think what we need is like bring back child infant mortality. <laughs> we need. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, really when, when you don't have when you don't have medicine, or when you aren't able to have industrial supply chains and industrial medicine, like it, a lot of this will be self-correcting. It's just a matter of it might not be very pretty. It's not going to be. Pretty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, ultimately, we are part of the natural world, and that's part of it, right? Yeah. You know, so it's regaining our place, right? Yeah. Right. So, how's the film doing? It's I see it's on Amazon, it's Hulu. I mean, you got some uh, yeah, so good it's distribution. On, it's it's on Amazon, it's on Apple TV, it's on Vimeo. So, if that's that, that, those are the spots where you can watch it, and yeah, it seems like it's having a pretty good reception. There's, uh, we're not really doing the film circuit quite so much, so we're sort of relying on people to just get it out there. And you're gonna make a bunch of money and buy a Tesla? Is that the idea? No, probably <laughs> probably make very little money, but <laughs> um, but it's pretty awesome. You're 20 years old. You've made a a film you successfully you know you had the idea you got it together you lined up interviews you traveled all over the world and you did it that's awesome yeah thanks <laughs> is that the high point of your life is it all downhill from here i think the high point of my life would have to be after the film of fairy creek and i'm hoping that that's not the high point either <laughs> but um yeah i mean the, the hardest thing of the film was editing it right like Try editing a film by yourself. That is definitely. Did you do the editing? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> the whole thing. Um, so I, I, I went to, I went, proof that you don't need a high school degree. I went into Evergreen State College and they let me in anyway. Um, so I was, I was there during COVID and I basically spent the whole time there on an independent learning project editing the film. Mm. And then, you know, as per usual, I dropped out of that after I was finished editing the film. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's, you know, universities are showing it. Um, there's been a good reception from like, uh, the activist community are doing screenings. Uh, there's, I think, the Cal University of California Riverside. There's going to be a talk there. Yeah, so. Cool. Yeah, I think it's it's going well. And yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just getting it out there because I think people people need to see it. And I think people, uh, honestly, if you don't, honestly, the biggest thing is I, I, I want people to act. Like, if you have money. Spend it on land. If you have, you know, do, there's there's so many things you can do. And, you know, if you want to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars on an old growth forest, then I have an idea for you. Get in touch. <laughs> Joshua Wright. Uh, the film is Eden's Last Chance. Yep. It's it, available all around. Yeah, available Amazon, Vimeo, and Apple TV. And you can go to edenslastchance.com. There's a spot where you can go find it. Um, and then I post photos of the forest I go explore uh, and the areas that are going get, to gonna get cut down just to have them for people to see that's universalwildlands.com and then um yeah i'm on instagram at joshua wright film for people who want to get involved and if you have a ton of money or if you have um a desire to get involved in i'm, I'm i primarily focus on cascadia but I, i'm down to help anybody anywhere to try to get up and resist Sweet. yeah thank you joshua yeah thank you that's great Except, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. 
What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation, running from a confrontation? Go down. We'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.